0: You are listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit illinilife.org.
1: This is Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 through 20, and chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The Word of the Lord.
0: Thanks so much, J.D. Uh, well, good morning, friends. If we don't know each other, uh, my name is David. I've been interning with the Alana Life staff uh, for the last couple of years, and I've had the pleasure of serving as the musical worship director um, here and heading up a few other Sunday crews. Um, and every now and again, I have the privilege of getting to share a few things from the God's word uh, with my friends here, and today is one such day. Uh, so for those of us who went on for the fall retreat last week at uh, Camp me. Uh, it was a really awesome time of just getting to recenter ourselves. Um, on following Jesus, or maybe hopefully for a few of us, asking ourselves what it could look like to start following Jesus, or follow Jesus in a different way than we did growing up as children. I hope it was a time to reflect on both the joys and the trials that God has placed in, our, in your life to both bless you and grow you in him. I know the Lord brought to mind a lot of both joys and trials for me, and it was great to have the space out in the woods to process them. And though we're not in the woods of Low Point, Illinois anymore right now, I think the mindset of processing both joys and trials is a really great one to re-enter our series as a church with through the book of Revelation, Uh, specifically the seven letters to the seven churches in East Asia that Nick opened us into two weeks ago before we left for the retreat. Um, And today we're going to be looking at the second letter that we find in Revelation 2, the letter to the church in Smyrna, which JD just read for us. Now, I'm obviously not going to spend a lot of time rephrasing and revisiting all of what Nick said two weeks ago, there will be a few reminders that I think will serve us well, because uh, our understanding of this letter to Smyrna today is going to take on some new context um, in light of what we know about the book of Revelation as a whole that we talked about two weeks ago. Um, and one of the things that Nick brought up a couple weeks ago is that we're not going to be going through... Ah, uh, the entire book of Revelation. We're focusing in on just these seven letters, um, which which gets a mixed result. I mentioned that there was some groaning about that. Um, it's me, hi, I'm the problem. It's me, in the words of Taylor Swift. Um, like, there's a bunch of scary stuff in Revelation, right? It's some scary, mysterious, unknown things that we we don't immediately know what to do with. Um, we're like, we're pretty sure we can't take them literally, um, at least right now, and we do, we know they're not a direct counterpart to. Something in our current time, but beyond that, like, what the heck do we do when we read this? It's scary stuff. It's a scary book. And it's difficult to get through um, if, like me, you frighten easily. I confess this to all of you today. Um, as a child growing up in the church, I spent absolutely no time in the book of Revelation. Because um, I was a really sensitive child. And, like, I was pretty sure it would give me nightmares if I got into, like, someone writing about the literal end of all existence. Right? Maybe some of you who grew up in the church were the same way, or maybe are the same way now. I don't know. I'm not judging. Honestly, like I was afraid of a lot as a child, but the very worst thing you could do to like preteen slash teenager David uh, was to tell me that my worst fears were going to be realized and there wasn't anything I could do about it. In fact, I was as I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of a core memory or whatever they call it on TikTok, these days. Um, it's a memory that was stuck in there from a whole bunch of years ago, right? So at a point in my schooling, I'll leave ambiguous. So I had a particular teacher. Um, who had what we might call a, a highly volatile temple, temper. So it's, I'd say, you know, about eight times out of 10, this teacher was very energetic, peppy, just outside his door, greeting students, saying hello to them as they walked in, and just still a love of the class material. Um, but sometimes, without a whole lot of pattern or for any reason you could point to in particular, maybe it was like a bad day, maybe the class before mine just like annoyed him in particular, he would be none of those good things. Um, and he'd behave pretty harshly and angrily towards the class for the entire session, Um, and it was no longer a fun class to be in on those days. Um, So for lots of reasons you'd need to ask my counselor about, much of the first part of my school day was spent praying and hoping and ruminating uh, that this teacher would be in a good mood, because the sensitive, fearful young David, like being in that class, was very scary when he wasn't. Um, So every school day, I'd be fairly distressed about... Going to this class the first four hours, um, just a sinking feeling um, of of this pit of dread um, in my stomach as I walked over to the class uh, to see if the teacher would be outside the door or if I was in for something much harsher that day. Well, one day in particular, I was leaving my fourth-hour class on my way to fifth-hour, and as I'm walking through the door, I see one of my friends from the previous class with this teacher, his name is Zach, Come up the hallway, catch my eye, and look at me and say, He's really mad. So I know exactly what that means. Um, so I'm proceeding down the hallway like a dead man's walk uh, to this class. And this class happened to be a German class. So the whole way I'm like, Scheiße, 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 Scheiße. I will not be translating that, by the way, if you know you. Don't. <sighs> but you can, you can more or less guess the sentiment, I think. And sure enough, when inside there, very snappy, we sat in silence for about 25 minutes. I guess there had been something in in the previous class. Um, My worst fears had been realized, and I sat there until the end of class, um, recognizing that, on this day at least, um, all of my fears and and all of of my hopes that um, the class wouldn't be that bad were for naught. Um, And as dramatic as it is to say that that was suffering, it was for Sensitive David. Um, Now this may or may not be a relatable story for you, but we can all point to those times when we've been faced with the reality of some form of fear, some form of hardship, um, and then immediately a recognition that there's nothing we can do about it. Um, I know not one but two occasions in my lifetime I've been told that someone very close to me uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And though oncology and, and medicine would do as much as they could, um, in both cases, I was explicitly told they would not make it to the end of the year. And indeed, it was between two to five months um, when each person went to be with the Lord. And you face a sense of, of understanding that like this fear, this hardship that you're going through will be realized, it will reach a culmination. And sometimes there's just no getting out of it until you're out of it. Well, the church we're going to be talking about today, um, the church in Smyrna, um, was going through this this self-same situation, right? This was a town that was rife with persecution. This was a town that was rife with destruction, um, with violence, with with people dying for the sake of Christ. Um, And there was no happy ending to it. Right, there seemed no end in sight. The people of the the, the people of God would continue to suffer um, into the foreseeable future, and that's the context we're diving into um, our passage today. Now, if you've read ahead um, in chapters two and three of Revelation, where the rest of these letters are found, you may have noticed that the letter to Smyrna is by far at the shortest of the seven. It's only got four verses. Um, so this will be, by definition, a very focused discussion this morning. So watch me still go 15 minutes over. Am I right, up top? Um, but we're going to focus it even further We're gonna, and, and look mostly today um, at Revelation 2, verse 9 and 10. So if you have your Bible or your Bible apps, those are verses we're going to be cross-referencing regularly, as always. They will be on the screen behind me as well. But verses 9 and 10 are the most directly informative about what the church is facing. So We're going to reread what we heard from J.D. today in those two verses, because what we're going to find is that they offer one of the most personal and immediate responses to this inevitable suffering and hardship, Um, certainly for the church in Smyrna, um, but also for the suffering and hardship we we may face as well. So We read, starting in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So at verse 9 here, we're presented with these three primary afflictions that are giving the church and Smyrna problems at this point. Right? We mentioned Tribulation which just means things are not going well for them generally. But specifically, we know just from history uh, that the church at this point, like others in East Asia, um, is facing intense persecution at the hands of the government. We see poverty, and this one speaks for itself a little bit. The church in Smyrna was under great economic repression and slander. So some translations use the word blasphemy instead. But either way, we understand what that means, right? Those following Jesus in Smyrna are being spoken out against, and specifically, they're being spoken out against by others in the Jewish population in the region. Persecution from the state, a loss of economic prosperity, and religious disunity with those around them. It's a powerful concoction of trouble for this region. If you got the chance to look through this passage in your small groups, there were probably a few things that stick out. Um, I know in the one I was sitting in, um, one of the first things that stuck out, John writes, I know your poverty and you are rich. And we we may be asking, well, what do we do with that? Um, Because if you're as chronically online as I am, you may have been tempted to read that little aside as John being like, the real prosperity was the friends we made along the way, (laughs) or at at least like the Jesus we followed along the way. Um, in other words, you might be thinking, well, like, all he's saying is that even though they aren't materially wealthy, they're rich in faith, they have a great deal of faith, and that's what's important. Can it really be that easy? And to be clear, yes, that is exactly what John is saying. Um, but we should be careful not to pass that off as just like a tried encouragement or, even worse, an Internet meme, right? Because to be poor economically but rich in faith was a huge deal for the church in Smyrna, um, Because they had developed at that point a huge reputation for commerce and trade, and economic wellness had become a big part of their identity as a town at this point. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Galena, Illinois. Um, All right, I'll get a little bit back there. Uh, So I had the chance to road trip over there for the first time over this past summer. It was a great time. Um, But Galena, so Galena is a harbor town about 250 miles northwest of Champaign. So it was named after a lead ore called Galena, for which there are a lot of different deposits. Um, there were a lot of different deposits found in the area um, around the 18th century, um, and because there were because of these deposits, because of these ore mines, these lead ore mines, the town arose to become one of the most like commercial, commercially successful like trading centers of Illinois, um, and it was considered for about a century to be like the second big city in Illinois, right next to Chicago and I guess Vandalia, which was the capital of the time. And over, but over time, the demand for lead ore went down, right? And the population and the identity of Galena as this, as this commercial force went down with it. And yeah, like it sort of got a rebirth about 30 or so years ago with the tourism industry, um, and that gave it a little bit of a second lease on life. For many, it's really, at this point, just a time capsule of sorts that's stashed away in Western Illinois of a time gone by. It's a town that is rife with identity crisis. Now, in many respects, the story of Smyrna is very much the same as that of Galena, Illinois. And if if you've tuned out at this point, I want to wake you up and make this very clear. I'm not suggesting that Galena is the modern-day Smyrna, Okay, Like, we want to, not, not talking counterparts, that's a frequent trap for people going through Revelation. This is just an illustrative comparison. Okay, But it is a helpful reference point, I think, because Smyrna was also a com- highly commercial harbor town named after, pr- after its primary enterprise, that being the production of myrrh, Smyrna. I'm not kidding, that's real. Um, and like Galena, it was frequently in contest with the other big city in its region, that being Ephesus, which we learned about um, two weeks ago from Nick, for the status as sort of the major commercial center in East Asia. And also, even more apparently than in Galena, Smyrna's history is one full of identity crises, right? As the centuries went by, one empire or conqueror would destroy it, another empire or conqueror would would restore it, rebuild it again, it'd get destroyed, always come back to life with a new identity and a new purpose. But this era of the church um, during which this, this letter was written, we're talking about 300 AD or so, somewhere in there by most accounts, it felt different somehow. Since its planning, the church in Smyrna had been a major constant, but now even that was under attack. The Roman emperors were systematically persecuting Christ followers because they believed Jesus was the king of kings, not Caesar or Nero. And even the Jewish leaders in the city were coming after the Christ followers, just as they had after Christ himself, because as they saw this whole like righteousness by faith alone thing was going on too long. And verse 10 offers us a somber warning. It's going to continue, for the people in Smyrna to some bad places. Verse 10, the church has promised that some of them will be thrown in prison and tested for 10 days. And though they will not be able to avoid the season, they are to be faithful even to the point of death. And I think it's an interesting little detail that the letter specifies that they will be thrown in prison and tested um, for 10 days. That was probably, the, at least for my small group, maybe in yours too, that was the other detail um, that stuck out as unusual. Because we don't normally get um, such specific um, date references for, for things like prophecy and vision and things like that. Um, and it's worth noting that the, the 10 days might have been understood by John's readers in a couple different ways. Um, I'll tell you one of the ways it wasn't understood, 10 days. So like, probably was gonna be a little bit longer. But what you know, w- one way it might have been understood is that 10 days was considered um, in just sort of the idiomatic lingua franca of the time to be um, sort of vague expression for a short amount of time. It, it's, it's the equivalent of us to saying, oh, it might last maybe a week or so. Um, ambiguous, but it's, it's meant to communicate that it's going to be a quick flash in the pan and then it'll, it'll be over. Right, and what we're meant to understand by that is when the, when the people of Smyrna get thrown into prison, they'll be in there for a short amount of time and then they're going to get killed, right? This is a political imprisonment um, the testing will be, will be a bit of a formality, but John, John is trying to communicate very clearly that for some people in, in the church of Smyrna, um, their fate is death. Not by any fault of their own other than the fact that they chose to remain faithful to Jesus, um, but also there will at this, at this point be no salvation from it. But another form of understand, but another way that might have been that the 10 days might have been understood um, is as a reference to Daniel, um, the book of Daniel. Now, notably, because of the high amounts of Jewish persecution in the city, um, the letter to Smyrna has, I think, the fewest number of Old Testament references out of the letters. Um, but because the, the, the span of 10 days is mentioned so infrequently in the Bible, um, and Old Testament readers would have recognized the book of Daniel as one of the few times that it is, um, there's every reason to believe that that would have held some significance for the church um, as background. Now we went through Daniel as a church, if you were with us, I think, a couple falls ago. Um, but Daniel takes but Daniel is set in the context of um, the exile of God's people into Babylon, right? And as people are being taken into town, as people are being um, enslaved, brought into the Babylonian culture, it, that comes with it. Um, everyone getting their name changed. Um, and everyone being as fully culturally immersed as possible. Um, and for Daniel and a few of his associates who were brought in directly into the king's service, that meant a change in diet, right? So everyone who worked under the king or was or was directly responsible under the king's leadership um, was fed with what the ESV refers to as royal delicacies, right, and they were instructed at that point that you are going to change your diet over to what the king tells you you are to eat. Well, Daniel and his associates, because they had had been brought in among God's people um, under a different diet, a diet of of vegetables, of of food on the land, and this had sustained them um, through the period of hardship leading up to this time, um, through the rest of the exile. And so they approached a sort of servant of the king and said, "Um, we're not going to eat the royal delicacies because they will defile us. Um, They will be bad for us physically. We'd like to continue... um, eating the diet of vegetables that we had um, before we came into the king's service. And the king's servant says, well, I don't want to get in trouble with the king, so we're just going to keep going with this. So Daniel replies, test us on the diet of vegetables for 10 days. And again, the, the phrase of 10 days comes up. Let us show you what this diet does for us. And if you are unhappy with the results at the end of 10 days, you can do with the results what you wish. So they try it for 10 days, um, and then here's the result of that little test. So he listened to them, this, this, this harbinger of the king in this matter, and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So whether this was an intentional reference or not, like we can see that there, there was an intentional adherence to who God told Daniel and the, and, and the people in exile who they were. Right? There, had, there had been an established identity, there had been an established set of practices, and Daniel held faithful to those practices um, and was rewarded and, and was eventually brought out of this sort of cultural assimilation. And so as people, when, we, when we're faced with unavoidable suffering, um, we're encouraged to lean into it. We're encouraged to be faithful, right? Live out the 10 days. Because God has established a, a precedent of his presence. He's established a precedent of his instruction and in giving us the things that he knows are good for us. Um, we can be encouraged to do the thing that's uncomfortable. We can be encouraged to push ourselves into to discomfort, maybe even bodily harm, suffering, death, whatever stands in front of us. We're asking ourselves, is who God says I am all that matters when I'm faced with suffering and cannibal? So that's our most immediate response, right? And that's what that's what the people in Smyrna were holding on to. But there was also a broader call for this, right? Now we need to start pulling out the microscope a little bit and thinking about what are some of the implications for the church as a whole. Um, so we talked a little bit writ large about the, about Revelation. It was it was what we call apocalyptic literature. It was a vision brought into John. John was inspired to write out this large account of what the end of the world would look like, including these seven letters. Um, And the book of Revelation takes the form that a few commenters refer to as a circular letter. What that means was John was inspired to write the letter and then send it around to the seven churches in East Asia and the surrounding areas. And what that would mean is, each of them would receive the fullness of Revelation in their time as they passed by, Um, meaning that Smyrna would receive what John had to tell Smyrna, but they would also receive what John had to tell the other churches. And conversely, everyone else would be able to find out what was going on in Smyrna. And this is a big deal because they would have seen a couple of things in Ephesus, in Thyatira, in Sardis, and all of the other seven churches we're going to talk about in this series. Um, They would have noticed, number one, Jesus doesn't have any rebuke for the church of Smyrna. And this is one of the, I think, two letters in the collection for which that's true. Um, there, there's some exhortation from Jesus, but there's also a warning. This, this is where you have fallen short as a church and where you need to repent um, in, order, in order to at some point become reconciled with the Lord. But Jesus has no such message for Smyrna. He just has a warning of suffering and an encouragement to keep the faith. So the other churches would have looked looked at Smyrna. They would have seen a church that has an outstanding reputation with the Lord, is in good standing with God, has remained faithful, um, has continued in faithfulness even in the death and rebuilding and death and rebuilding cycle of the town. And they would have looked at it and said, wow, even that church is suffering, and even that church is persecuted. They would have seen um, the martyring of several major Christian bishops in this town, Um, most notably um, the Bishop Polycarp, which is not a polysynthetic Magikarp, but like the name of a person. Had to check on that real quick. like, Surely that's not how that's pronounced, but it is. And that was a hugely um, revolving event um, that warned the entirety of East Asia um, that stuff was getting real. And they and 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 they joined together. They joined together in unity. Um, we we heard from J.D. in the in that sort of first chapter from Revelation, Jesus first addresses all seven churches at once, the seven lampstands with seven stars in his hand. It's it's a it's an issue related to Smyrna, but also it's going it's going out to the other churches. And what happens is the, the other churches come together. They recognize it as an issue of the global church. And while Smyrna had the support of the other churches in East Asia, though, there was still a problem, right? The religious leaders of the day in town were working against them and speaking out against them. There was, dis, there was religious disunity um, among people who purported um, to be followers of God um, and learners of his law. We read in verse nine, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's a phrase that we as modern-day Christians may not be able to unwrap, a synagogue of Satan. Very simply, a synagogue where Jewish law is taught, where Jewish community occurs, um, where, people, where people celebrate and come together um, under the auspices of God. And a synagogue of Satan means it's not God, but Satan's law that is getting taught here. Smyrna was faced with a religious leadership that was more concerned with its laws, with its legalism, with its head knowledge, with wanting to um, make sufficient peace with an oppressive governmental structure, and most importantly, with their own power and their own status in the world, that they were directly standing in the way of those who wanted to follow Jesus Christ. And that, says this letter, is more destructive than any violence um, or any physical destruction of the town could ever be. As we've been going through discussing this letter in particular, but also Revelation as a whole, like we're faced with the reality that as 21st century Christians in the United States, we don't really face the same amount of persecution, anywhere near the same amount of of physical persecution, political persecution, Um, that was faced by the churches in East Asia. Um, and so we might be tempted to, to look at this and say, oh, well, this is a Jewish Christian thing. This is, a, um, this is an old issue thing. But have you ever been faced, for instance, with someone um, coming from a different like, tradition of faith as you, looked at a sacrament or a sort of point of secondary theology and said, that person is not a Christian? Or that person's not a real Christian um, because they don't share the same opinions about baptism as I do. Or that person's not a real Christian um, because they believe one thing about the book of Revelation and I believe another thing. That person's not a real Christian because they take this passage of Scripture um, maybe more literally than I do. And sure, these are things worth wrestling with, right? Um, we We want to... come to the fullest understanding of truth that we possibly can about God and, how, and the way in which he's revealed himself. Um, but there's one thing that this example of, of the slanderous, blasphemous Jewish leadership can, can teach us. Um, and that's that standing in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ is just as good as doing the work of the enemy. If a secondary principle, if a point of pride if some cultural expectation ever becomes more important than proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that we are doing the work of the enemy. And that's what unity in the body is all about, right? That's what the seven churches in East Asia understood. Um, That's what parts of our modern churches have struggled to understand. Um, There are, in the New Testament, from Jesus to Paul to all of the saints in the early church, they offered encouragement after encouragement to remain unified as the body of Christ. And there's a slide with at least five of them um, from Philippians, from um, the Gospels, and you you could look and find a dozen more. Is it making a call for us to agree on every preference, on every point of theology? Absolutely not. It's calling us to come together for the striving of the faith of the Gospel for the work of proclaiming the Gospels to all nations and to all people. And if it ever becomes something about something other than that, we are disunified and that will destroy us. So there's a call here in the face of inevitable suffering now, on the church level. We're not to make it worse by discouraging people's pursuit and rest that they find in Jesus and can find in Jesus, right? We as the local and global church need to remain in unity with the body of Christ. And that's a second of immediate response. We need to be asking ourselves when there is suffering, is, is the thing I'm doing to get out of my discomfort or try to just get out of my discomfort standing in the way of the gospel being proclaimed? And if it is, that's the point of repentance. That's the point where we fall short. The church in Smyrna understood that, and we need to make sure we're understanding that too, even as we look at this letter and figure out how can we follow Jesus better through it? Now, beyond the personal call and the call to the church, there are two other verses in this passage that we haven't discussed yet. You may have noticed we've been, we've been, we've been hanging out in the middle of this letter. Um, and these verses offer a call to the world as a whole, a call to the churched and a call to the unchurched, a call to the free and a call to the imprisoned. Because without understanding why any of this can be true, we have no hope of responding to any form of suffering and hardship in a way that is fruitful. Right, so there, there, there's sort of a bookmarking effect of this description of persecution, right? The promise of continued persecution for Smyrna um, is bookended, so to speak, by other words from Jesus that describe who he is and how he fits into all this. We start with verse 8. It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Again, if you've sort of read ahead, you've noticed that Jesus introduces himself differently to each church, contingent on the message that they need to hear, the place they need to grow, the exhortation um, that will lead them to salvation out of the place that they're in in these end times. And it's significant that here we focus on Jesus's death and resurrection. He came before, he came at the end. And he encourages the church at the end to be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So in the letter to the church of Ephesus, Nick mentioned that Jesus sort of structures the letter as a compliment sandwich. It's like, Here's the exhortation, here's the hope you can have. Now here's some ways you gotta repent. But then, here's another source of hope, right? Um, The letter to Smyrna is structured more like a despair sandwich, we'll call it. Um, Jesus establishes right at the front end that regardless of what's going on right now, Jesus says that he, Jesus reminds us that he came before this season and he will persist after this season. And that's the foundation through which we read, all of the accounts of persecution that we just talked about. And then he reminds us at the end of the letter that even though we can do nothing in the moment to save us from our suffering, to save us from our hardship, to avoid the thing that the passing of time has coming for us, Jesus is going to be the one who conquers in the end. And it's easy to just read that, right? Some 300 years after Jesus did his ministry on earth, died, came back to life, and ascended to heaven. But we have all sorts of of evidence for like this being exactly as he says, um, if we just go back and look in the gospel, right? Jesus went through exactly this cycle. He waited in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sought a reprieve from the torture he knew was coming, and he found none. He was bodily destroyed in one of the most brutal ways documented in human history, just like Smyrna. And he was resurrected, claiming victory over the dead. His true purpose, his true identity revealed. I can't get through a single sermon without making a movie reference, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. He knows who Smyrna is, boy, because he is Smyrna. This letter ends with a promise of Jesus. He tells the church, all you can do, all you must do, is be faithful. Even if that's to death, even if that's to further destruction. Separate the notion of hope from the notion of life this side of heaven. And I will give you the crown of life, true life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And the crown of life is, is again, an, an interesting metaphor for lots of reasons um, that you could listen to an entire other sermon on its own. A lot, like, a weird amount has been written about that metaphor. Um, but what I will say that it's understood as most scholars to be not a crown of royalty, but a crown of victory, right? The crown placed upon the head of someone who won a sporting competition, who fought a fight and took the spoils. That's what Jesus promises he will do. And that's what Jesus promised he's already done. And this faithfulness unto death, this faithfulness into the unknown outcome is how Jesus invites us to share in that victory one day. So looking past just the idea of leaning in, being confident in, in who God tells us we are, looking past being confident in, in staying, holding fast to the body of Christ, um, on the world level an overarching response to inevitable suffering is look is to look to the model and coming of Jesus Christ to always be asking ourselves are we living for the right now or are we living with faith for what is to come whether we see it or not and that's a difficult ask in this day and age right i'm a planner i'm a type a person i need to have the five year plan on deck And I'm talking to U of I students, so I know I'm not the only one in here. (laughs) And it's a terrifying notion to be like, you can't plan away the hard stuff in your life. And you can't plan away the discomfort. Um, But Jesus has already conquered it. And so as we place these three responses to inevitable suffering side by side... It's easy to see how Smyrna, um, even in four verses, has been doing these well, right? They have been accepting the cycle of of destruction and rebirth, knowing that a new day will come for the town, because they've seen it before, both in the history of of the region, but also in the testimony of Jesus. They held fast to the body of churches in East Asia. Um, and found support in them when their leadership would not provide any. And they looked to Jesus as the ultimate example of faith to the point of death, Remind them that it is possible and it is worth it. We can ask ourselves, are we doing these today? Are we who has received no direct rebuke specifically from Jesus? Are we securing ourselves... um, and preventing our own destruction by holding to the fast of these three things as people, as a of life, as a nation. And so maybe when you're walking to that midterm, um, sure, like, positive that you're going to fail it or positive that you're going to forget everything you studied. What if you did? Would that be the end of the world? Would that, like, counteract who Jesus says you are? If you're going into a difficult relation, like relational problem with a significant other, you've got a difficult conversation um, happening on the phone. If you're like me and you've got at least three dozen emails in your inbox that you don't want to look at, what if you did? Like, does who Jesus says you like? Does who Jesus says you are? Um, does the support of the people around you outweigh all that? If it does, um, I want to invite you to join me into asking the Lord to be bigger than that in our lives, Um, to center, to give him a point of centrality so that we are assured of his victory, Um, even if not immediately, um, that that it will come out in the days to come. Let's pray for that together as the band comes up.